welcome to sin talk the sin talkers around the table here today discuss the witness and the analyst we'll think about the entangled modes of witnessing perceiving discerning moralizing and analyzing what is experience other values in the world does a documentary filmmaker merely document what is the role of the self in this method are values learned made or discovered can one objectively witness an assassination is objectivity a modern day superstition can one witness in a self do artists deal with facts can one prepare for the unexpected and what is the long term future of our conception of objectivity we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today prem chandavarkar he is a practicing architect easily distracted by other subjects he writes and blogs on a wide variety of areas from architecture to politics he is based in bangalore professor amitabh das gupta he is a retired professor of philosophy from university of hyderabad he has worked in areas such as philosophy of language linguistics and social sciences and amar kaur he is an artist and a filmmaker his works explore the politics of power violence and justice he is based in delhi so uh, amar why don't we get going with you because you know you've worn a few similar but different hats over the years and lived in a few different worlds uh, and if one were to ask you uh your reflected position on the difference between let's call it merely recording and making um what would that be what have you come to learn over the years on on this distinction to the extent that it makes sense to you there's surely not two clear cut boxes um but what would you have to say on this this specific question on the difference between recording and making yes or documenting or you know uh or fiction and yes i mean it's it is uh, it's always been valuable to to record uh, to document and it's something that i uh, i think i just the first thing i started to do uh, and kept on doing for years probably still do uh but i think that mm, pretty early or somewhere along the way i i started to feel that i wasn't really sure what i was documenting anymore often everything that i would document i felt that there was a lot that i was leaving behind there was uh, if i was documenting reality then i would get acutely aware of a certain part that i had not recorded or i had left behind if i would document something and bring it back and relook at it over a period of time you know that uh, that absence that itself would grow larger of what i hadn't got and it's not something that i missed getting 
is just that um, I think every time I'm out there and I'm even witnessing or recording, maybe not witnessing, but recording and documenting and bringing back. And was it a difference in your experience of it? It just felt more full-bodied while you were there, but when you recorded it via some technology, something or the other, yeah. it just shrunk it somehow and took took dimensions away. I mean, it's you could sometimes say reduced it, sometimes you could say shrunk it, sometimes, uh, you know, but somehow for me, those words I never kind of, Right. They never worked for me. I just kept feeling that uh, there was a lot that was happening that was perhaps undocumentable. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I I could sense many things. Uh, but could not record them. But they needed another vocabulary or a method or a language. Um, and... Uh, very often every every you know uh, everything that i would record i knew a whole lot around it before it after it that was as much if not more valuable and then if you then you know get into the question of making and making meant actually putting this together in some way and when you put it together uh it took even one further step away from that sense that I had of the actual space of what I had recorded, you know. Um, you, you mean it felt less natural? You felt the no, sense of artifice when you had to make something? No, I, I, I wouldn't even use less natural or anything of that sort. I would just say that it would become uh, a little further away from what I had really experienced. Mm. So, you know... There were many senses that were activated, many things that I was understanding, watching, sensing. Uh, some of it I would document. And then when I would make it, it would be another you know, step away from what I had really sensed. What is experience? What is experience? When you say experience, what do you mean? Like your... Uh, all it, these senses impinging on you, you what... No, it's it's something that grows over time. Uh, about what what does one mean by experiencing? Uh, so it's not a s- straightforward answer. Of course, I could give many answers about you know how uh, what is it what is one experiencing? It depends on what point in time of life you are in, and how you experience, uh, what state of being and mind you are in prior to experiencing. Uh, you know, a certain state of mind experiences in a certain way, uh, which makes you look in a certain way, which makes you comprehend in a certain way. So this whole question of experiencing is also actually, it's it's probably, a, you know, a longer discussion of what is it that you experience. And the more you you have different sets of experiences, whether of different things or even of the same thing, at least for me, I, I start stumbling onto various positions, ways of looking, ways of thinking, ways of understanding, and so on. And when that happens, it you know this whole process of documenting, uh, you know, you can see its uh, inadequacy quite often. Amitabh, what is experience? You you belong to the world of philosophy, and maybe the pair to think of with your help is. 
objective subjective if one is in a place or in a situation a context and you yes. want to just take it in just record it or document it uh yeah um uh, fact value like there could be several pairs yes how 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 does one think of it is there such a thing as objective is there such a thing as fact is there such a thing as yes uh datum which which is out there somewhat independent of the subject perceiving it or taking it in ha huh. i mean if you see uh, i mean historically uh, and amar also said certain things that you know i mean the different ways you experience and uh, and it is also possible that the same matter may be experienced in diverse ways okay by the director of the film and by the other directors okay other filmmakers what i mean is so you see so that it is because of that reason uh, i mean uh, people think that they are really uh, subjective because you see traditionally uh, there is a separation there is an absolute separation made between fact and value okay and fact and value presupposes okay the distinction between the objective and the subjective yeah okay now science for example and as you uh, all of us we know that this is an age of science and since rene descartes you see that uh, modernity begins with science modernity coincides with science okay so we celebrate science and celebrating science means celebrating objectivity right now what is objectivity or what is objective that which is no way okay disturbed by the subject or subjective factors okay so in that it is subject independent subject absolutely subject independent subject neutral so in that context they very much talk about truths and knowledge okay so truth for them what is truth truth for them is something which is objective whether i like it or not whether i approve it or not it does not matter truth is truth okay so they have an absolute conception of truth which they call the objective notion of truth so truth by definition is objective now in contrast but truth is not the same as fact but for them that truth is based on certain kinds of facts you see why truth is based on certain kinds of facts because fact is something which is tangible okay it can be verified it's a kind of property it's yes. in, it's in the yes in nature what is nature after all nature they will say the nature consisting of facts okay now science or natural science wittgenstein would say that in his earlier work totality of facts totality of facts again you know let's not go into the wittgenstein because yeah. there is also the metaphysical aspect in the tractatus yeah. but later wittgenstein changed very much away from, from that position yes yeah. language plays a very important role there now so fact for them is out there and the objective of science is to really study and discover those facts and these are really for them truths and this is something objective what is the truth is there such a thing as objective 
uh, exactly what's now, the cutting edge today in philosophy yes now let me say that in contrast to that you have subjectivity values are for example they are subjective and that is why you see as he was also saying that i interpret my experience in certain ways and someone else may see the same situation maybe experiencing the same situation in certain other way and why this difference because we have two different kinds of point of view it may be you know there are there are values and there are values and the way i perceive blueness of a chair is is different from the way i perceive goodness of a person or niceness of a situation or appropriateness of a situation you know what i mean like these are different domains of course yes that i am not denying that but the point is that values are if you look at the origin then david hume uh, he talks about moral sentiment he talks adam about. smith yeah yes yeah so there are the people they will say that these are our emotive responses that is why what i see as blue and you may see it not as blue but as some other shades of color so this is where the variation comes whereas that kind of variations cannot come when i perceive or observe facts right now here there is a question that what is the purpose of saying that facts are independent of view whether i discover it or not whether i recognize it or not they will say that look there is nothing called truth okay independent of me okay mm. that means that what is called truth must be recognizable there is no point of talking about truth which is not recognizable and recognition needs a subject that it needs a vantage point yes exactly this is where the role of the subject that comes okay so that is why that abs- and another thing is this connection i would like to say that we as human agents we as scientists we look at the facts not as such but we look at facts through certain theories through language language plays a very important role as you know wittgenstein gives so much of importance on language because the way we understand the world whether it is nature or whether it is it's mediated or, it's mediated by yes mediated through language okay through concepts the way i conceptualize now there is a very well known paper by hilary putnam called why there is no ready made world okay now he said that we have the illusion we think that the world is ready made the gravitation is there newton's laws of motions are there well no we 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 literally we interpret we read it in that way we recognize in that way and we make it's truth making every day all the time yes all the time so truth is something which is not metaphysical that means it is out there okay whether i recognize it or not but it is objective okay no truth so is, is basically an epistemic concept epistemic here i mean that truth must be recognizable so subject object kind of dichotomy that absolute dichotomy cannot be made because of the interaction the subject has with the object interesting okay so that is the thing so fact value dichotomy 
that these people, they propose, David Hume and Adam Smith, that look, it is our emotive response to the situation. They, they cannot deny ethics. They cannot deny values. But they will say that, look, values are really my emotive response to the situation. Okay. That, I mean, David Hume, for example. Interesting. Is this dichotomy of any meaning to you? Objective, subjective? I try to avoid getting obsessed with this dichotomy. Yes. Uh, because I don't think that is productive. To me, experience is actually a starting point. There's a famous statement by the architect Louis Kahn who said that great architecture starts with the immeasurable, goes through measurable means when it is being designed and in the end presents the immeasurable. Mm. And uh, that statement struck me as an oxymoron first because it it seemed to be asking me to measure the immeasurable. And then, then I realized that a lot of what we consider of value, what makes life worth living, love, joy, beauty, wonder, reverence, mastery, are all things that are beyond our capacity to describe or define. But we know them as tangible reality when we experience them. So perhaps because I'm an they're architect... They're tangible but not measurable. They're not measurable, but they're tangible. Uh, they're so tangible, they even affect us physiologically. Yeah, viscerally. We can viscerally, yeah, yeah. yeah. So perhaps my bias as an architect uh, makes me spatialize things. So to me, the question, what is knowledge is, uh, what is fact is less interesting than the question of where is knowledge and the spaces of practice. Because it is actually in these spaces that we interchange ideas and we validate our own consciousness through the consciousness of others. So for two people to agree that they love each other is actually a much more solid connection than any intellectual agreement on some so-called objective uh, phenomenon. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, that's not the way we're trained, but it's the way we intuitively live. Friendship, for example, just emerges from being spatialized, being in the same space as someone, just being open, being non-judgmental. If you sought to find friends by first constructing a philosophy of friendship, I think you wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> so so it's, it's really, to me, the question is where I do things, the conversations I have that I validate, how someone else's critique uh, uh, sort of modifies my own consciousness and how the, that creating these kind of spaces that nurture these conversations. So is there so, anything abstract at all or these are all relational things ab that lie between intersubjectively between people, between people in spaces and so on? Is there is there anything, is there a metaphysical side to the world, the way you conceive of it or think of it for you as a practicing architect, as there a is theorist? There is definitely a metaphysical side, but that side is mystical. It's it's It can exist in your body, but it's beyond your capacity to describe. Mm -hmm. So so to me, critique is, is not to create a foundation for my practice. The To me, the relationship between theory and practice is a conversation where they contradict each other. Where theory becomes a means of critiquing practice, practice becomes a means of critiquing theory. So, so my focus has been to how to how to manage and nurture these kind of spaces. Like in in my own field, I like to say that architects have thought too much about the practice of architecture and not enough about the architecture of practice. Hmm. So, so how do you specialize these questions is is of great interest to me. Hmm. 
what is your articulation amar like when you when you when you when you were describing a little while ago that in the situation you felt like there were things amiss or too little was being said it was not full bodied and so on what was your approach to dealing with it like what's been your strategy uh, how how have you gone about figuring it out to some extent what how did that change your own art practice or um the mode or style you shifted to how have you dealt with it i think uh, i mean the you know the moment this um kind of became a, a a real issue in a sense for me i think i just started to just experiment uh with various ways uh for instance i felt uh I, what i did was i would compare two situations where i would uh, say uh, get to a certain situation or a location or a place uh, uh, and i would prepare uh, i mean i would research very thoroughly about what i was doing and going in a certain direction and then i would prepare in a totally different way i wouldn't research but i would prepare in a certain way i would compare these but two but you would obviously do that with different things right you can't both research and not research the same uh, sometimes location. i yes i i would do them with different things parallel things right uh, i would see the results uh of what i you know what i understood how did i relate it's what a kind of a by b testing like yeah, uh, a yeah. by b testing sometimes even <laughs> uh, simpler you know sometimes it was even uh, like if i if i go forward then what do i understand and if i go backwards what do i understand and if i stay for x amount of time what do i understand since it's only between me and myself i can do what <laughs> i want to do yeah. just to keep trying and playing around to see you know how am i relating to this experience or how am i understanding or what kind of intuition do i get uh, and so on so sometimes it would even be uh, about placing some obstacles so that uh, it you know prevents me from uh, looking being understanding acting in the way that i've got accustomed to and then seeing how do i relate to the fact to the fantasy to the undescribable but what what was your inner speech was it was it the case that you were looking for something out there some kind of truth small t capital t whichever way or was it a process of uh, some kind of search for like yourself like what was it were you looking for something metaphysical again to pick that same word like do you have that kind of a map of the world or or it's a little bit more hybrid syncretic all kinds of things going on and it's really a bit more phenomenological how you experience things and mapping that in some shape and form for yourself and for your art practice i mean is different uh every situation is different uh, so i'm i'm probably wearing a different kind of hat in different modes and different locations and spaces and stories um do you but, think there's a capital t truth in the world no. or no that no i mean if at all for me uh, i eventually get you know got towards this uh um uh, issue in a sense of the truth for me it was more about uh, uh searching for it and getting a sense of it getting a sense of a part of it uh but in multiple ways uh, so it's actually you know it's not one way it's uh, one way and then another way and then another way and then another way and and just experiencing these different ways 
uh, and in terms of again what you asked about inside and outside it felt many times that you know the clearer i got about inside my head the more i understood suddenly something outside me and vice versa so why why does that happen why does that happen you have any idea prem why why is so much of uh so much of our vision of the world somehow dependent on one's own inner vision some kind of clarity i don't know these are just words i'm i'm making up uh, there could be what is this relationship between the self and the world as far as experiencing it goes as far as this whole business of trying to figure thing out just being a somewhat blank spectator witness pick, pick your word why why is there this relationship if there is one maybe i'm being uh, presupposing too much to me the um a piece of writing that has influenced me enormously on that question is Italo Calvino's essay on lightness mm-hmm. where he says when he first began to write he found an increasing gulf between the the lightness of good quality writing and the world he wanted to write about and it was because he sought to reproduce the world in his writing and when he and the world is complex so you write something and then it's oh i've left that out and try to add it and then it keep adding so much that he was it became heavy it became heavy and then he says it was like there was an inevitable petrification that was happening through writing and then he starts talking about petrification and he thinks of the greek myth of medusa <laughs> and the person who slays medusa is perseus who embodies lightness he has wings on his sandals and he can walk on clouds and he slays medusa by never looking at her directly but by looking at her reflection in a polished shield so he says to me this is the allegory of the artist's relationship with the world of never to look at it directly but indirectly through metaphor and that's what gives it lightness and and give, makes it uh, tangible and makes and it, it poetic from prosaic it's not just poetic but uh, makes you have a sense of what your world is it's only through metaphor you can describe it and i think what you're doing in that process i mean you you earlier you talked about the problem of documenting so in the sense of john berger's statement that you know photograph is to capture a moment so to avoid its suppression by subsequent moments hmm. so what you're doing in this metaphoric process in this artistic process is capturing an aspect of the world and giving it exactitude and that exactitude resists the entropy of the world which is messy and changing and therefore it's not so much what the artist means or anything it's just how the art that has been created has that exactitude that people can use it to take a measure of who they are and what their world is and that's what traditional societies did because if you look at you know a typical rural society in india for example they don't delegate an understanding of the world to a scientist <laughs> yeah. they 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 reconstructed through the everyday objects so the the rangoli pattern is is a cosmic diagram or if they make a a coconut scraper they'll make it in the shape of an elephant's trunk so it becomes part of their animated universe so so it's is, is it, this is it is it is it contemplative or is that a case of over reading it's not it's it's we talked about the, I know these the are fact, western canons yeah the, we, we talked to... about the fact value dichotomy it's it's 
like this is refusing to accept a dichotomy between utility and contemplation mm. between idea and utility it's 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 merging all of the and is talking about a continuous metaphoric process of building exactitude as a lens through which you can comprehend the world but is it a theoretical is there is the theory there is that conceptuality the, i'm not suggesting that it ought to be there or somehow superior there is theory there but not theory in a foundational sense um there's a wonderful book by donald shawn called the reflective practitioner and he says this is the mistake we make we, we think we construct a theory and then we apply it in practice and in reality he, theory pops out of practice it's very mixed up and yeah. he he actually studies uh, practitioners in a wide variety of disciplines from uh, architecture to psychiatry and engineering and and he says the effective practitioner constructs a value system and uses the uh, specific professional challenge the practice task which is too complex and unique to be reduced to applied theory but uses that as a means to challenge their value system and so it's not the the theory as foundational to practice as shawn puts it it is is a model of reflection and action whereas effective practitioners have the ability for reflection in action mm so so i think this theory versus practice fact versus value truth versus subjective these dichotomies are are, are really not productive they useful to critique your own practice but they're not foundational to your practice what would you say to that amitabh you no know, i uh, in one sense i do agree with both of them and uh, there i will I, i i i subscribe to the view that there are multiple ways of looking at the world there are multiple ways to looking at reality that means reality can be described in various ways but is it that can be understood that... also in various ways now why depending on certain kind of conceptual scheme and it may not be an explicit kind of conceptual scheme or framework okay but you have certain kind of conceptual scheme or framework in your mind you see and if you look at the history of human thought and also history of science there you will find that since from plato onwards plato looks at reality in one way aristotle in another way if you come down farther then you will see galileo newton and in the various ways so and prem has given a very interesting example that this rangoli kind of thing there's a cosmic pattern but that doesn't mean that it is primitive okay so this, that means that these are different ways we are looking at the reality depending on what kind of conceptual or conceptual scheme or framework that we have it may not be consciously adopted conceptual scheme Okay. what about mathematics because a lot of mathematics a lot of the ideas in there if one can call it that yes live within the world of mathematics there's no way you can go out there and find it in the world it it, it may it may manifest itself now the yes. pattern of a flower and yes. some complex yeah. chaotic way yes. the set of obstacles to mathematics as you know yeah that there is a kind of distinction that is made again a, a very theoretical kind of distinction which both of them probably will not agree to no, that that's fine i think prem uh, and amar can have their views but, <laughs> yes but, yeah. that is that there are two kinds of 
uh, truths or two kinds of statements that we'll find. One is the analytic statements, another is synthetic statements. Mm. Now, analytic statements are necessarily true. They are true come what may. Now, mathematical statements, okay, they are true come what may. Come what may means what the experience may be. So they are necessarily true experience and they are universal. Them. Experience cannot invalidate them. No, 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 no. That is the view of various uh, philosophers and thinkers, okay? So they said that, look, we have to treat mathematics or some of these statements. Like if I say, all bachelors are unmarried. <laughs> now, this statement is something which is necessarily true. It's also tautological. It's and referring it, to itself. So Exactly. It is tautological. And mathematics is nothing, as Arlie Wittgenstein said, it, that it is, it is a series of tautology. Yes. So they are necessarily true. That's a truism. Is that okay? So that they agree. And synthetic statements, on the other hand, they are empirical or they talk about the world. Okay, they talk about the world, they, they will give you new knowledge, whereas mathematical sentences, they don't give you new knowledge about the world. Right? So, so now, this distinction again, those who are not accepting subject-object dichotomy, those who are not accepting fact-value dichotomy, they also don't accept analytic, synthetic kind of distinction. Now, here, let me refer to this famous uh, philosopher, uh, w. V. Quine. Okay. Yeah. Now, Quine actually uh, provides a thorough critique of analytic synthetic distinction. I mean, I don't want to go into that, uh, his arguments, but he said that, look, these analytic statements are not really a defined kind of thing, and analyticity can never be defined. It can be only presupposed. Okay. Now, this is something, and his, he said that if you want to define analyticity, then there will be circularity. Because analyticity has to be defined in terms of synonymity, okay? Like all bachelors are unmarried. And synonymity, then what about synonymity? How do you define synonymity? They will say that in order to define synonymity, you have to fall back on analyticity. So he says that analyticity is an indefinable notion. Now, such a notion cannot be accepted or acceptable, okay? So, Quine then afterwards, okay, he said that, look, better, let us do away with this analytic... But, but, but Amitabh, um, yes. no, no, no beef against Quine, he was a great guy, but a lot of the mathematical statements are true. I mean, they may be in a different realm, but they're true. Like, the, you, you, you kind of use them and come up with objects and rockets and this and that and they yes. tend to work. I think you deploy mathematics yes. in some shape and form in your own world. No. So it, it's, it originates there. It may be, it's, it's, it's kind of derivational. One thing leads to another, deductive, this, that. Um, so is that a different realm altogether with no dotted line link to the world or it's uh, like, what, what, what's the, no? how cut off is it? Yes, yes. His argument is, okay, I mean, in a very broad uh, manner, his argument is that, look, even mathematics, I mean, she will never deny the mathematical truths, for example. I sure. mean, he cannot. I mean, how can he? But one thing is there, he says that mathematics can also change. Okay? And he gives this 
various kinds of example where he says that there is a crisis in mathematics. For example, Guerrero's incompleteness theorem. That means there was a time when people used to believe that everything can be proved within a mathematical system. He said, no, mathematical system, that is that Guerrero has shown it, that proof of a mathematical system has to be done outside that system, you know. So it's a very elaborate kind of argument. So there is a kind of a crisis within mathematics. So mathematics can also change and about truths. Okay, he will never deny mathematical truth, but he said that mathematical truths are basically based on certain kind of convention. Okay, so this is that in, in the case of Platonic, for example, Plato's interpretation of mathematics. He says that there is a world of numbers, like from Pythagoras onwards. Okay, they're saying that there is a world of numbers and Plato believes that mathematics belongs to a different realm, realm altogether. And what the mathematicians they do, they look at the world and then they try to derive Okay, mathematics from there. Okay, so this Platonism, okay, they deny it heavily. And for them, the interpretation of mathematics is very much conventional. Okay, there are certain conventions that we adopt and following that conventions, we arrive at certain mathematical uh, truths. Later Wittgenstein, for example, in his famous uh, text called Foundations on Mathematics, Remarks on the Foundation of Mathematics. In that text, Wittgenstein says that there are various mathematical practices. Okay, if you, the tribals, they have a different kind of counting system, may not be our kind of counting system. Okay, so all these systems, they are kind of different practices. Now, which one is better and which one is unscientific? These are absolutely illegitimate questions, okay? So mathematics is matter of kind of conventions. Where are you on this frame? Because I ask you because you're not unaware of mathematics. Like you, you're an architect after all. You must be somewhat, somewhat familiar with that world. You are not very, very, very distant from it. Is it a different system altogether? Would you, would you still hold on to the belief that you said in another context, I know, where facts and values are in different realms and objective and subjective are in different realms. Now, is this a different system altogether, the, this world, the world of mathematics, for example? I didn't say they're in different realms. I said trying to resolve those contradictions is not very productive to me. To me, I, I think of uh, what someone like Roger Penrose uh, says when he talks about three worlds. There's a physical world, then there's an emotional and subjective world, and then there's what he calls the platonic world, which is the world of numbers and mathematics and mathematical forms. Yeah. And, yeah. and he argues for the reality of the platonic world because he says the universe uh, behaves according to its laws and the universe has pre existed us. He's, he's reacting against what a lot of contemporary social yeah. sciences and philosophers everything have said. Everything is socialized. Everything yeah. is socialized. So he says the, the universe uh, pre-exists us and it behaves according to these laws. My reaction to that is that the universe pre-exists us, yes, but the need for it to be comprehensible is does comes not... Comes with us. Comes with us. <laughs> so perhaps yeah. the mathematical world, the philosophical world, things like that are... To me, I think of them as the metaphor of the lens, that we, we need to look through it, 
and uh, we we can comprehend the universe only by looking through it we might we might reproduce it we remake the universe in our own way but by the view we see through the lens and that lens like natural language develops its own internal logic that cannot we whimsically disregard it so it's like it's, grammar for a language so it's, yeah, yeah, yeah so it starts starts affecting us another very interesting idea is i had the privilege of uh, attending a lecture by walter ong who's famous for his book on orality and literacy on how uh, literacy changed the world of oral culture and this lecture he was talking about meta language and mysticism and he says meta language is is like philosophy's attempt to construct a language of languages that can explain everything so he gave a, a simple analogy which he illustrated with his body he said can i point yes i can point so suppose i point at something with my left hand then he says can i meta point can i point at my pointing so i point with my right hand at my left hand now i am meta pointing but actually the object i was originally pointing at with my left hand starts becoming hazy and moving beyond the horizon so so each system starts constructing its own view so so he said the the impulse to meta language has to eventually depend on mysticism hmm and so so to me this brings me to the question of mindfulness interesting and mindfulness is not is not about is being able to see the world and see a dimension of subtlety in the world that you did not perceive otherwise uh let me give you an example there's a, uh, the poet pablo neruda has a series of odes some of them are to things like the sea but some of them are to everyday objects like table and a tomato and you read those poems and and they those those everyday objects become alive and that's because he's he's able to see some sort of character i mean he can look he can look at a table and says is this table the picture of serenity or is it this uh a picture of disquiet and see something in his form because of that so through mindfulness i think you start perceiving this it's it, uh, it's an everyday rigorous practice which uh, by which you start perceiving this grain of subtlety which is actually very important and a lot of transcendental mystical qualities in the world are uh, acquired through this and and indian culture has a name for it sadhana or the urdu word would be riyaz subtlety is details or it's um, uh, uh granularity it no, is no no uh, um, it's more dimensions more relations let, let let me give you a story uh, uh to illustrate this i read an interview of the hindustani classical musician pushkar lele who had started training at a young age and uh, and uh, reached a plateau so he decided to change his guru and he started training under vijay sadeshmukh and he thought the new guru will give him the keys to the higher realm he seeks but the guru pushed him down to basics and he said for next 6 months 8 hours a day you will sing only one note sa so he thought that was pedantic but in this system you have to do what the guru tells you so so he started and he said one day he sang the sa his guru was listening for and his guru smiled and he said i realized till then i had not hit the exact center of a note before and if you trace the lineage of this epiphany his guru was vijay sadeshmukh sadeshmukh's guru was kumar gandharva hmm. 
and one of Kumar Gandharva's gurus early in his career, unusually for that time, was a woman, Anjani Bai Malpekar. And in one interview, Kumar Gandharva talks about something that Anjani Bai Malpekar taught him, and she said, "You start with a note, and your sadhana reveals to you an entire octave within that one note." So that's the world within, in the grain that, of sand. Yeah, it's the world, world within. So, and it's actually. You, these these differences are tremendously important because they differentiate. If you think of two musicians, both professionally trained, one is good and the other is truly great. The one who is good cannot be critiqued because he is out of tune or not uh, faithful to the rag or anything like that. It's in these very subtle differences of microtone and timing that the truly great one breaks into a completely different realm. So it's like Neruda could hear the voice of the table. So here the musician hears the voice of music, and when you're captivated by a great musician, both the musician and listener are ca- captivated by that greater voice, or the the voice of music. Yeah, that's so. That's... So I think this this discovery seeks the space between, not the space beyond, which our regular intellectual training uh, teaches us to seek. And you cannot go in there intellectually. You can only go there as a practitioner. Yeah, you can only go there experientially. Experientially. Where are you on this summer? I'm sure things come to mind. There are analogies, maybe from your own practice over the years. Yeah, um, it's very nice to hear you say all of that because I mean, in 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 a simple sense, I feel that that's exactly what I have been saying. <laughs> Uh, even <laughs> all my answers to your earlier questions have just have, been. Have been like, answered all your he's questions. He's just on, exactly on, on the said question. that's what I was saying. When you even between the inner and the outer, between different methods of comprehension uh, or different kinds of truths, um, uh, even if I were to just say in the simplest and the most basic way that um, what has been I, your simplest work. Yeah. So, if in the simplest and the most basic way, if I were to, uh, I if I were to live in a certain way, if I were to eat in a certain way, if I were to talk and be in a certain way for a certain period of time, after that certain period of time, I am able to look and be with other things in a certain way. So, if you are referring to the tomato or the table. Uh, I have to be able to exist near that tomato and near that table in a certain way. Uh, I can only exist in that way if I am in a certain way prior to looking at that tomato or being with it. And is that a uh, is that is that a state of mind? Is that where is your body? Yeah, it is. This? It and where is the world? And yeah, it is a it is it is a state of mind. It is a state of body. And I'm I'm not trying to sound absurd about it. I'm yeah. just trying to say it's it uh, as say for instance one of the things like you said you know what are the things that you would try to so one of the things was that does it impact the way I understand does it impact the way I relate to the world. And so the only way to answer that is to be and to practice it and try it and see and that it does or it doesn't. So quite clearly, I can see the note. I can see the tomato in a certain way. I can see what is happening around me in a certain way only if I prepare for it in a certain way. Uh, and I, then and then does the whole world uh, look a bit different? I know I'm, I'm reducing it to a certain kind of modality of... When I use the word look, 
or is it is it it's not about the world looking differently it's about the nature of your insight into a part mm. of the world mm. and and that that insight is just a little bit more interesting enlarged deeper sharper uh, exciting than what it was just before and then another set of experiences give you another insight again not enough to get a complete sense do you sense. then feel that you yourselves are a certain kind of instrument that you're tuning adjusting absolutely zoom in zoom out aperture ab- absolutely even when you speak about the center of the note uh, it's it's quite clear that if you find a, a kind of a moment it will be momentarily you will lose it and you will find it again but when you do feel sometimes you do find the center of yourself and of your mind and of your thought and the direction that you're going in is it How, necessarily always fleeting for me it has been reasonably fleeting <laughs> <laughs> you mean reasonably stable uh, yeah it's been fleeting and in a sense i would look at it actually as uh, for me it's everything is series of attempts <laughs> so everything is a series of fleeting understandings and so in that that's the reality itself that you understand and then you lose understanding you find voice and then you lose voice and when you lose voice you have to find it again and when you lose it do you lose the memory of what you had found of because what, what you had found earlier just moments ago uh often yes and so it's actually quite a discovery to re-find voice you know completely in a new way in another way and uh, you do desperately you know just for your own reference you can try to hold on to the previous one but it is exhilarating to go from you know one to another and and so perhaps sometimes i do feel that uh, what is most valuable is to be at peace when you lose voice yeah to look for things when it's dark yeah frame you you, no, you had I, a thought yeah uh, to connect back to the earlier discussion about mathematics and uh, to say that the it's very different when you start considering nonlinear mathematics now i can't describe this in a technical sense because whatever math i knew in high school is long forgotten but uh, that does not lend itself to commonplace intuition yeah there uh, are there, 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 no there, there are commonplace intuitions and and my understanding started with the categorization of three kinds of scientific problems by a scientist called Warren Weaver in an essay he wrote in the 1950s and the first he called organized simplicity where everything can be captured in a theory or a conceptual model the second he called disorganized complexity where the system is so disaggregated only statistical techniques can be used but the third which he said requires more studies organized complexity where meaning and order emerges in a system through the interaction of its parts with each other and their context now the metaphor for this is i'm the living example of this is a termite's nest which is a mega structure with it's like the best planned city if you think of it it has climate control it has functional zoning it has waste disposal it has many things you would want except there's no but mass- is it is it an emergent artifact yes it's emergent it's not it's not there's no master planner termite and the way it works is termites exude a kind of chemical called a pheromone which is a hormone intended to act with other members of your species 
and the termites that follow can sense the trail of termites that move before. So it's kind of self-organizes in a so, way. So they know that if I smell a pheromone trail like this, I must put a piece of mud like that. And the order just emerges from there. Now that is, I think that is the way we intuitively live. All our social structures, our familial relationships are emergent. And so you can't start with some prior philosophy. You have to immerse yourself in, in life. And there is an impulse to pattern recognition through which you just keep building. To me, this is best captured by a statement by the scholar of myth, Joseph Campbell, who said, uh, we make a mistake when we think we are seeking the meaning of life, whereas what we actually seek is the rapture of being alive. And we feel that rapture when we find in something outside ourselves an echo of our innermost being, our innermost spontaneous being. And to him, myth is one of the ways of finding this rapture, but there are many other ways. So, so to me, that's that's what is interesting—the joy of being alive—and that's what what I and I I don't I've I made the mistake earlier in my life in trying to intellectualize everything, and I found that in that process of sanitizing the joy out of my life. Yeah. So if you just live fully, live in a more mindful way, or pick your word, which live in a less, mindful, less but, but, but have the critical and rigorous practice of and sadhana. Which is to, this? Which is in a way this oscillation between being a witness and an analyst. Yes, in a sense. Yes. Does does theory, does conceptuality, do concepts pop out of living? Uh, well, uh, uh, I beg to differ with you there. <laughs> Not uh, completely. No. Uh, but uh, you see, there is there is an importance of uh, intellectualizing. Now, intellectualizing and over-intellectualizing. We shouldn't have asked a university professor. Things. Yeah. So, over-intellectualizing really will take out joy from your life. Okay, that's a kind of barren kind of intellectualizing. It will lead you to nowhere. Okay, but intellectualizing. I mean, in our common parlance, is a kind of a very uh, high-sounding phrase. But intellectualizing, basically, uh, it means that trying to understand... It's sense-making. Sorry? It's sense-making. It's just figuring out our experiences every day. Yes. Uh, linking yes. the various things we know. But that is intellectualizing. Yeah. That is intellectualizing which is actually conceptualizing something, which is... Uh, I think Prem, I'm sure, is okay with that. I yeah, think it, he uh, just didn't know when he tipped into over-intellectualizing. Intellectualizing. That's why I said <laughs> he did not use the term over-intellectualizing. Now, so I'm afraid that whether you are, uh, you know, talking <laughs> no, about... No, no, he's almost... To me, I, I am uh, sort of spontaneously intellectual, if I can say <laughs> such a thing. But, this is where uh, I have a problem. So, so to me, intellect intellectualizing is still important but its primary reason is to make sure my mindfulness does not descend into self-absorption so i think that critique of yourself through stepping outside yourself which one can only do intellectually is important but you can't rely on it as a foundation it's this conversation this is back and forth that, i think the question is, the question is whether a somewhat more analytical life or intellectualizing or whatever we can pick one's words is able to apprehend something which living alone cannot, which or this vacillating, of course, I think vacillation is totally cool, vacillation, oscillation, going between the two worlds. But is there something that only this side can do, only a theoretical, uh, analytical... No, let me tell you, first of all, 
we are using this word many times, Prem also used it, and all of us, we are using it, that something which is foundational. Uh, I mean, this is where I think uh, foundational means something which is an unquestionable kind of thing. Now, foundation can be questioned very much, and I I know that both of you, they very much agree to this. Okay, so when we use the word foundational, we should mean, first of all, that foundation can also be changed. In the earlier time, foundation means something which is unchangeable. Okay, it is something which is static. But we do believe that foundation has to be changed depending on how you look at it, depending on the practice, okay, all of these. Now, another thing which I really feel, I mean, you said mindfulness, which is also a very important kind of concept. Now, here, I, uh, here, I, one thing I, here, one thing I uh, notice, and I come back to that problem of value, okay, right. that values are subjective, okay, which, as the received view says, that there is fact and there is value, and there is dichotomy, and all of us, we do not agree such kind of absolute uh, separation. But there is a question. Can values be perceptible or observable? So which would mean that values are in the world, they're out there? Yes. Now, in what sense, if I say that values are like facts, they are perceptible or observable in nature, then in what sense I mean that they are perceptible? Now, this is where I do not know your mindfulness that will help us. You see, that means that, for example, you take uh, the value threat, okay? Some a situation which is threatening to you. So the value of threat, okay? Now, the other day we were talking, I gave this example used by Akhil Belgrami, a very well-known philosopher who also came here for a talk here. He was seated where you are. Okay, yes. <laughs> right. Now, Akhil Belgrami gave that example that a Bangladeshi fisherman, okay, suddenly saw in his horizon that there is a dark cloud and lightning. No, he was alarmed. Okay. And this is where he finds there is threat. Okay. Now, where is threat here? Threat is not visible here. What is visible here is dark cloud and lightning. Yeah. Okay. But then, this is where he makes an interesting kind of uh, argument. I mean, again, intellectualizing, that <laughs> normally people will say that, look, you see a threat because you're emotionally reacting to this situation. You see the dark cloud and lightning. You know that your life is in danger, okay? Uh, and your family will be in great trouble, all kinds of things. So what he is saying is this, that look, this is not just emotional response or desire. Desires can't stand alone, okay? Desire must correspond with something called desirability. So there is a relationship between desire and desirability. Now, desirability means that this is a situation which is threatening, and I, as an agent, and this is where he says that I'm a practical agent, 
Okay, that means I am engaged with this. And you're compelled to take some kind of an action. But that same storm, the same storm, Amitabh, could may or may not be a threat to several others who may witness it. Would you agree? And does that not then make that storm at least somewhat subjective? No. Like I may witness the same storm as the fishermen, as the Bangladeshi fishermen. Yes. And not find it to be a threat. Yes, you may not find it as as, as a threat. But then you do not have any desire to do something. Okay, hmm. that Bangladeshi fisherman will then immediately will think of a course of action that how to get back to the shore, how to uh, inform the coast uh, guard and how to do certain things. Similarly, cruelty, for example. Similarly, there are other moral values. People originally thought that they were originated from our desires. And they are just emotive responses. He said, no. Another thing is here that all these values, they actually, there is a normative demand on us. Okay, these values make certain normative demand on us. And that is why we today respond. I was telling you the other isn't, isn't this Isn't this a kind of intersubjectivity? Like over the yes, years, you've kind it, of learned and yes, taught each other. It, it is something which we have as social being, we are all intersubjective people, and that is why, for example, a week ago there was a ghastly accident there in Coromandel Express in Balasore. Okay, now that night, you know, there was a real crisis about blood, because Balasore is a very very small town in the on the border of Bengal and Orissa, very small town, and there were so many. Uh, I mean, uh, people, okay? I mean, they re- require immediately what's blood the, transfusion. What's the moral problem there? What's, what's the... Yes, what's let me the, tell you. Yeah. Then immediately, okay, next day, they do not have any blood problem because immediately there was a long queue to donate blood. And so was, many people. Why they came? They were not affected by the accident. Their relatives were not there. Nothing. But they came spontaneously. That is a normative arch. That means they must have recognized that value, that this is a situation where I have to do something. Now, what I can do? I can give, I can donate blood. And when there is no blood in the blood bank, there is hardly any blood there. Okay? And then by 24 hours, even less than that, there's huge blood. And I have seen it in the TV that there's a huge, long queue to give blood. Now, how will you explain that? No, that's fine. That's fine. And this is where your feeling for... Both of you were saying that 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 filmmaker, okay, he's actually... A filmmaker can make a documentary on that. And there he approaches data with a certain kind of ethical kind of point of view. And... That kind of ethical point of view, okay, must be there, available at an objective level. They are not subjective. Okay? Are you? Where are you on this? You're the filmmaker here, Amar. Are you gripped by a certain kind of moral fervor, a certain kind of ethical impulse? In certain situations, sometimes, not always, some things draw you more, some things feel more intense. Now, obviously, you're not leading a flat 
uh, emotional state on various axes. Now, to the sorts of things that Amitabh is pointing to, um, what's this interplay between context, between you, the situation, the world, what goes on? Yes, I mean, taking off from your example, I mean, yeah, I am gripped by many such desires. A desire to do good, for instance, or to contribute, the one that you referred to. I think Amitabh would say that it's triggered by something outside. Triggered by outside, a desire inside them has been triggered by something outside. Mm. Fair enough, maybe, if that's yes. the right description. Yes, yes, not Matty Maybe it may not be the complete description as to what is the reason for their desire is another question. Would be interesting to go into. But to answer your question, uh, you know, just as I'm, I, I feel compelled to try and understand what could be the multiple reasons for them wanting to give blood. Uh, and that there will be multiple answers for even each individual, maybe. But uh, there is also a desire to take blood. <laughs> and there is also pleasure from taking blood. <laughs> uh, so that is another, you know, dilemma that uh, grips me. Uh, and how does one understand that? So for me, yes, this is a real situation. It's, a, it's something that you see all around us. And one needs to respond. So how does one respond to that? How does one comprehend this this desire or this celebration of, of taking blood as well? What's the future? Where do you think this is headed? What's the future of this uh, objectivity question? Do you think it's, 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 it's a kind of superstition, this whole objective, subjective thing? Amitabh, what do you think? Where is philosophy going to be according to you on this... Uh, objectivity question 500 years out? First of all, I mean, you know, I mean, no one can deny it. It's undeniable that there is objectivity. Otherwise, it's not possible. But that sense of objectivity, if you see there's an absolute sense of objectivity, that is rather unattainable. Because, you see, at every level, if you see, that we are guided by various kinds of considerations, okay? It may be moral considerations. It may be certain other considerations. In fact, an architect, for example, he may be uh, guided by certain kinds of epistemic values, okay? That means that kind of design which you should make or she should make, okay, that would be aesthetically elegant, okay? Or it should be simplified, but it should look beautiful. Now, these are different kinds of epistemic values that can enter into his, into, into architect's mind, okay, how to design building in such a way that it should be simpler. Is such a thing possible, okay. Prem? Can, 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 can spaces be designed in a manner that it does not cause, but in some way aids values, um, moral values, all these very, yeah, very, very, very carefully, values, very, very carefully used. Um, it could also be the opposite. I think you just spoke about the desire to take blood. So can 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 certain spaces um, 
be more conducive for violence and, and vice versa and so on and so on. Like what what is that relationship between affective space and mental states and all of those things and and physical space somewhat reduced, of course, in the way I articulated and, and what happens to us as human beings. Um, space is not totally deterministic that you, in the sense that I can design a kind of space and be certain that people will behave in a certain way because of the way the space is designed. But it is conducive. So there are spaces that are conducive to transcendental experience. There are spaces that tend to promote disquiet. So uh, there's no doubt about it. What is required to me as an architect is the kind of empathy I can construct within myself with the act of inhabitation. And, and that relationship is to strike that kind of relationship is important to me. What is inhabitation? What, what do you mean when you say that? Because I, I design a space and after it is constructed and I hand it over to whoever's going to use it, I step away, my voice is silent. And there's an act of inhabiting it that breeds memory, that breeds uh, affection. Yeah. And so I, I have to design it so that it is, it enhances and emancipates that process of inhabitation. The architectural critic, Yohani Palasma, put it quite well. He, he said, when we enter a space, we lend our perceptions to it and the space returns to us its aura, which entices and emancipates me. So that, that is what an architect seeks to do. So then the question is, how do I live? So I start building that empathy within myself. And to me, this is what what is interesting is some of the writing in feminist ethics, for example, which says that uh, uh, ethics comes from embedding yourself within relationships of care. It does not come from abstract categorical imperatives like mm -hmm. Kant would have yes, yes. Uh, tried to put it. So how, how do you put yourself in those sort of relationships of care? And, and what you have to be willing to live with to be in that relationship of care is to accept a tension between who I am, who I might be, and the world I inhabit. Yeah. And and to and, and the to be, world is changing. And 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 to be alert to those changes and to keep to keep that mindfulness and alertness to that world and, and yeah. to, to keep seeing and, and yeah. but to, to sustain that that uh, empathy and compassion uh, in, in this whole uh, process. But a lot of us are uncomfortable with that tension and we try to resolve that tension by removing one of the pulls. So we try and introduce certainty to the world. And when we are uncomfortable with that tension, that creates the transition from wanting to give blood to wanting to take blood. So, so that openness to the world, that willingness to be within it, to be pulled by it, but also to realize the echo between yourself and the world and that ethics of care you can construct in that it's process. A, it's a somewhat expanded consciousness. It's, yes, uh, I think the philosopher Morris Berman put it very well. He, he, he said that we are trained to uh, in an ego-based consciousness that steps away from the world. And in that process, modernity's greatest error has been to... The subject-object. To, to disenchant the world. Yeah. To, to just look at your agency and your sentience and not look at the sentience of the world. And he suggests that's not the way humans lived before modernity. They lived with a participating consciousness. 
that recognized, just like Neruda recognized the consciousness of the table. Yeah. So, so to recognize that consciousness and and to sustain that not just not just the non-human but also the non-animate. Uh, yes, yes, and, and everything else around. Yes, something. Oh. And uh, uh, there's an interesting book, recent book by uh, Jane Bennett called Vibrant Matter, and and she says nature has a sentience that becomes evident to us when you consider longer time scales, and that's the crisis we're facing right now, right in climate change. Yeah. So, so we have we have to reframe our politics to recognize the sentience of what we've traditionally considered insentient. So, so that Interesting. Eth- that ethics of care is is what I seek. Why don't we end with you, Amar? Where is all of this headed? And to this point that Prem kind of just brought up, and obviously you surely experience the world around you at all times in in ways which are a bit unlike some of us where are the non-animate where are the non-human is is that somehow incorporated in your conception of things in your experience and things I'm sure it, it it is but how do you articulate it to yourself and um, where are we will end with this yeah I don't speak definitively but um, uh, I, I mean sometime back even if I were to speculate but some sometime back I uh, suddenly began to realize that if we are looking at uh, our, whatever you may call it, uh, the aberration of our human species uh, or the malfunctionings that we are so prone to do. Um, and all the good things, Amar. Pardon? And all the good things. Uh, yeah, and all the good things, yeah. <laughs> no, but I'm referring to the aberration, sure. uh, to the problems, because we are dealing with problems as well, um, that uh, I start to feel that uh, this uh, this dilemma, this crisis, the aberration or the problems, uh, a familiarity, a deep kind of familiarity with this issue is quite old. Hmm. This question that we have been discussing, the crisis that we have been talking about is actually addressed and understood and worked on and uh, responded to experimentally uh, in thought, in in text, in debate, really, really long time back. And I think there are a whole set of conclusions that have been reached uh, about uh, not just humans, but also the non-human world. So in that sense... uh, I think where are we going? I think we probably go back. I mean, there is no other way but to go back and reconceive, rebegin, uh, re-understand what we supposedly have already understood and forgotten in a sense, or forgotten what we have forgotten. Uh, and the other thing is how, in terms... How, how does one go back? You mean just go back to the texts and the corpora and... You go back to your own self, you go back to the text, you go back to uh, human experience, uh, non-human experience, you go back to to all of these things, I feel personally, to revisit, rethink, re-listen, and so on. And uh, personally for me, in in the work that I've been doing over the last several years, uh, for me what's been most interesting is to... is to find ways and discover and see what I could at this moment best call, uh, you know, inner relationships between 
various beings, human, non-human, and uh, you know what's this interconnection between all of them, and if there's a way to actually slip into this interrelationship, uh, and once you get into that space experientially, thoughtfully, visually, in any way. Uh, then uh, it's uh, exhilarating, shows a certain way to be, to live, uh, to coexist, uh, and to take care. Mm. That's a good note to end this on. Thanks to all of you for making it, and uh, we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.